Welcome back to Evolving, the podcast designed to help you strive, thrive, and optimize. Today, I am here with the lovely Natasha Moss, who runs Theory Gang on Substack, and it's a newsletter that covers a lot of different topics, from neuroscience to philosophy to psychology. She's definitely run the gamut in terms of her range. She used to be an academic and today considers herself to be a neuroscientist, writer, and podcaster. Thanks so much for being here. Wow, that was a good one-shot introduction. I don't think I could have done so well. I'm just basically winging it, but that's okay. Thank you so much for being here, and I really do appreciate all the different types of content that you produce in terms of the memes and the podcasting and the writing. You really have a lot of range and versatility, and I was just wondering what's top of mind for you nowadays? What's been something that you've been grappling with recently? Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. It means a lot because a lot of people are like, you do too much. Of course I do. Maybe you do too little. But so it's coming up on two years that I've been writing my Substack. One year I switched to having paid subscribers. So I've been very Substack focused this year, but I've only been podcasting for about eight months now. I am really getting into podcasting. So I'd say writing and podcasting are the two things I'm really doing a lot of these days. And I'm launching a new podcast. So I have syllogism. But I just recorded two episodes of Neo Academia this week. Quite a bit going on at the same time. I know previously we had talked a little bit about your thoughts surrounding IQ and the theory of multiple intelligences. And I was wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's the whole second season of Syllogism is about IQ. And really not IQ. It's the debate between my co-host and I as to the importance of IQ as compared to the theory of multiple intelligences. So we're exploring this theory in psychology, which was brought, I think it was like the 70s Howard Gardner came up with, maybe 1980. I have this book actually sitting right next to me. His book, he has two, he has Frames of Mind and Multiple Intelligences. And it's really easy read, really fun read, but there's some critical flaws with the idea of having multiple intelligences. And so I think as we'll get into the season, it's not the same thing. <laughs> intelligence, ability, there's probably a distinction there between general intelligence and different abilities. So that's what the whole season is exploring. And it's a giant debate between me and my co-host who I think overemphasizes the importance of IQ, but we'll see who's got the biggest IQ at the end of the season. I think most everyone enjoys good debate, especially when it's civil, even though you're presenting these opposing viewpoints. What's your take on emotional intelligence? Is that an actual concept? Is it legitimate? Is it backed by research in your view? Yeah, I think that's, a, according to Howard Gardner, that would be in the realm of interpersonal intelligence or intrapersonal because it's like Socrates know thyself, but then also how well can you interact with someone else? And so I think that is a real thing. There's a lot of people who have, I would say, a faulty cognitive override where their limbic system takes control and they're unable to recognize when they're acting from fear or from excitement or from some other kind of emotional limbic lizard brain situation and not really using the best cognitive choices or judgment that they actually want. They're not connecting their drive with kind of the outcome they want to get. And so I think that is what I think of when I think of emotional intelligence. Do you know what the fuck you're doing? Oh, sorry. Can we swear? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Does that mean 
In fact, that emotional intelligence is something that can be crafted over time. I'm thinking of that Daniel Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow, where he talks about our primary and secondary systems and like the first brain being reactive, that lizard brain that's driven by the limbic system that you're alluding to, and that the second brain is like more logical and rational and like a little slower to action. Is emotional intelligence something we can cultivate by maybe suppressing our first brain instincts or maybe like taking a moment to calm our sympathetic nervous systems before we react to something. Yeah, I think absolutely. First of all, the concept of plasticity is not what we thought it was when we first discovered the idea of plasticity. Our brains are a lot more plastic than we think. So new neural pathways are being formed all the time. And when I'm talking about cognitive override, that's exactly what I'm talking about is that's a great book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And you're absolutely right. The first instinct is the limbic vagus nerve stimulation, these kinds of things that happen instantaneously. And you want to run or fight, flight, whatever through the hypothalamus. And what I'm talking about in terms of emotional intelligence is being aware that exists and then acting from a place of desired outcome with full intent on what you're doing. And rarely do we do this. It's very hard to pull that together in, in an orchestrated way, especially on your feet. But that's exactly what I'm talking about. Love that book. And it's so funny because we all think we're above these heuristics. We all think like, I wouldn't do that. No, you absolutely would do that. We all do that, whatever that is. It's just human nature. Very true. What are some tips that you might be able to share as far as being less reactive or being able to take control of that impulse instinct that most of us have? Yeah, it's funny. I never talk about this, but I think as a child, I struggled with a lot of emotional intensity. My family did not understand me one bit. Half my family's Armenian, like very emo emotional, intense people. And then my other families from Chicago and Tennessee and things like that. And my stepdad went to school like in a military school when he was like five. And so emotions were like this chaotic thing and on my mom's side it, um, we just we all acted what they say they just shoot from the hip and that's what I think they meant when they would do that and my grandmother had an eighth grade education so she would just go based on instinct and that kind of kept her alive kept her thriving same thing with my Armenian half of the family I was the first one in the family to go to college and all that but the diaspora of having the emotional trauma and all that stuff from generations that we carry with us. They tell stories so intensely. And so I grew up not knowing that Armenian family, but knowing that I had this intense, broody kind of nature. And also I was a very deep thinker from a young age. So I think that was what helped me to be a little bit more introspective. I had to stop and be like, what the fuck? Like, why am I not getting through here? And I realized that emotional intensity, when you meet people with that, it's not well received usually. So just based on that experience, I started looking inside going, okay, what can I do? And I think cognitive behavioral therapy really helped me. When I was in grad school, I recognized I'm out of control. And I started seeing a really great therapist. And he was like, okay, we're going to work on just stopping. Whenever these intense emotional events happen, you can't spiral out of control. Stop kitchen sinking everything. Stop throwing all those things in and just kind of recognize where we are. Stop the unhelpful thoughts. And then we moved on from there and we're able to progress into action. But that was my first foray into recognizing my own emotional intelligence. And then most recently, I am a huge fan of ACT, Acceptance Commitment Therapy. 
And that's along the same lines. I'm really hoping Stephen Hayes will come on my podcast. He's the author and not really inventor. What do you call someone who comes up with a technique, like a psychological technique? Conceptualized it or something? Yes. No, he's really great. He was recommended to me by another therapist and acceptance commitment therapy. So you said one key word that I wanted to go back to. You said, do you think we can override those things by suppressing our system one? And I think absolutely not. I think you have to not suppress it, but accept it and recognize it and not be like, oh, you shouldn't feel that way. You have to accept and validate your own thoughts and feelings. I really love that idea of acceptance versus suppressing because I do think that a lot of the time trying to override our natural instincts can be really counterproductive and even damaging because it makes you think that as a person, the way you exist, that there's something broken or inherently wrong, but all of those things are things to be embraced and worked with, not something to be avoided. So I really love that you talked about acceptance as being the key rather than trying to like override or just completely eliminate these behaviors that just come second nature to us. And this is obviously a lot of evolutionary programming. And I appreciate you talking about epigenetic transgenerational trauma because I think there is this idea that the things that have happened to us in the past, even things that have happened to our ancestors, obviously change our DNA. And a lot of traumatic events like the Holocaust, for example, they can lead to gene silencing, which can sometimes be deleterious in the long run. But I feel like it's a redemptive message that with CBT and other other types of lifestyle changes and behavioral changes, we can actually maybe even reverse some of the things that have happened in the past. And perhaps our ancestral past, it definitely informs and influences our present, but it's not the whole story. It's not something that is incapable of changing in some way. It's pure conjecture. It's speculative. But I did work on epigenetics a little bit when I was in grad school. And we see generational, we see behaviors affecting the F1 generation in animals, in rats. So stress-related behaviors and fear-related behaviors. And so I don't think it's too far of an extrapolation to say this happens in humans. But that's where, we get, that's where we're getting into trouble is with things like evolutionary psychology and anything, any kind of molecular biology applied to humans these days is like dangerous territory. I just say shit and then I'll deal with the repercussions later. How about that? I do feel like that's one of the, one of the harms of cancel culture. It just prevents people from being people who would normally evolve and change our opinions because I think it's just a very natural thing for us to change our minds when better information comes to light and then cancel culture has this idea that we must be stuck in our ways something that we believed at one point in time must be the thing that we will believe all of our lives and it just it prevents us from being the evolving people that we are so mm -hmm. I feel like that particular messaging can be quite damaging in the way that it doesn't allow people the freedom to express their viewpoint at a given moment in time, given the knowledge that we have in that moment. And I think we deserve the freedom to change our minds. I think you're right. And even more than the cancel culture stuff, I think with the open creating that we do, putting ourselves out there, everybody having a Twitter, having a TikTok, everybody being out there with their opinion all the time, it doesn't leave you a lot of room to grow because the public does not take well to mistakes, especially when it comes to politics. And if you look at science as well, what happened in the last couple of years, it, when you mix politics and science, it's a disaster because science is constantly evolving, changing, growing. There's nothing firm. And we still don't really even understand what forms are fucking universe. So these people are searching for certainty in the wrong place. Like they're like, oh, follow the science. I'm like, you following the wrong one. Because <laughs> do you remember Galileo when everybody thought things were one way and now they're not? So people are looking for certainty. 
and they turn to the leaders and the scientists and it is very uncertain which is why I think I'm not really afraid to say anything anymore I'm just saying what I think now and I may not have all the information but I think it's important to show people that I'm not perfect I don't know everything I may not know it now I may know it tomorrow I may read something tomorrow that changes everything that I thought and I don't see anything wrong with that we're learning and growing and nobody is fully formed I think that's the way it should be I couldn't agree more. And I really appreciate you talking about how science is not necessarily a surefire thing in the way that our knowledge will always be incomplete. We can only illuminate those dark spaces, but I think a lot of the time we make the mistake of saying that we know better now, we're not going to be making the same mistakes. Like for example, sometimes in medicine we'll say that we know better than to bleed people out with leeches now. But the thing is, we're not making this identical mistake, but we're making an equivalent mistake in assuming that we know so much more now and that we're advanced, but future generations are going to judge us just as harshly as we're judging the past ones because yeah. our knowledge is still incomplete. In the history books, we're still going to be looking very foolish. And that's just something to embrace, I think. You don't need to necessarily shy away from it. Another thing that I think is interesting in science is like this concept of falsifiability, because you've probably seen that there's debates over whether a scientific theory can be considered valid if it's not falsifiable. And just for the audience, falsifiable means that a theory offers testable predictions. And where do you come down on the idea of whether a theory should be considered valid if it's falsifiable? So it's funny you should ask. Our current book club, I've been doing a book club for a couple of years. It's like a big joy in my life. And our last book we read was The Case Against Reality by Donald Hoffman, who is talking about the idea that the world is a little bit deeper than what we see, that everything we see, observe, perceive is kind of like an icon. It's an illusion. He has this interface theory of perception. And the thing I appreciate about old Don Hoffman is that he is, I think he's Popperian. I think he thinks we have to be able to prove this. We have to be able to show it. But in physics, the issue is that we are the observer. We are part of the experiment, at least when we go to try and reconcile anything with the quantum world. And this is an interesting topic that I'm currently exploring for myself. And I would say at this point in time, I think I, I fall down on the side of falsifiability that it must be predictable and testable. It may, must make concrete predictions be testable in order to constitute as capital S science. That doesn't mean that there's not something else. Obviously I'm making statements all the time and none of us follow the science and everything that we do. There's hunches, there's conjecture, there's speculation, and all of that is cool, but until you have the line drawn in the sand to say that we can test this, it makes predictions and it shows us what the world actually is, none of that shit is science. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's theorizing, it borders on a theory, but it's not science. Today, ask me tomorrow, maybe when I finish a couple of these books I'm reading, I'll change my mind, but this point, that's where I'm at. That makes sense. And I do think that there are quite a few things that are hard to rigorously test because like you're saying, a lot of the time we're part of the experiment and sometimes just by observing something, you're changing the outcome. As the observer, that's like a very difficult variable to control, especially as you're saying when it comes to quantum things and being able to test some of those. String theory is probably the one that gets most hotly debated. You know, are there parts of this that are falsifiable or not? But mm -hmm. it's definitely an open question. So it's always just nice to know, like, how are people thinking about this? And what are other people's takes in the community? Well, it's funny because I think amongst physicists, there's a large consensus that string theory is cool. 
but the, there is a small resistance that is that does not agree. And that's what we're exploring right now in book club. But yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with that. But I'm very curious. And I also I haven't gotten to the end of this book yet. I know very little about physics. And so this I actually graduated early <laughs> when I was finishing up my bachelor's and started grad school in the middle of my physics course. <laughs> so <laughs> my physics is so bad. But I had this theory and this thought that holy shit, the string theorists are postmodernists. And I'm not sure if this is like my hypothesis yet, but I'm thinking out loud right now. But I think this might be a thing that I'm going to be on. It's a kick I'm going to be on for a little while. So would physicists as postmodernists kind of clash with absurdists in your view? No, I, I think the absurdists probably absurdism fits pretty well with postmodernism. I think it, oh, now we're getting real weird with it. I enjoy absurdist philosophy because I think the world is too weird for us to ever understand. And I think that's the joy of it. That's the best part about it is that we're never going to get this shit, but we are going to keep trying no matter what, like monkeys on a rock in outer space that we are. And I think that's fucking hilarious. So yeah, I don't know. M more to come on that. I, it's like a subject I really like thinking about though. I guess it's like that quote, the universe is not stranger than we do imagine. It's stranger than we can imagine. I'm not familiar. And I usually refrain from quoting people unless I know for sure and have read it somewhere because inevitably I'm going to be wrong. <laughs> Yeah, there's a good chance I messed that up myself. Something along the lines of like, the universe is stranger than we can imagine. And uh, that's probably true. I do think that there's some knowledge that's just beyond our comprehension. Like in the same way that we're unable to break the speed of light barrier, I feel like there are some barriers that are just in place because they're simply beyond our scope of comprehension, which is again, getting philosophical. But once we're talking about absurdism, I guess nothing's really off limits. No. <laughs> That's how I like it. That's how I like it though, Nita. Like, I want to talk about everything at least a little bit. <laughs> yeah. There's just so many thoughts that you have and it sometimes feels like, I don't know what to do with these. So sometimes <laughs> just riffing with other people on podcasts is like the only way to get some sort of resolution around them because it's sometimes you have this idea. Am I the only one who like thinks about these things? Certainly not. <laughs> but that's what we're doing here and trying to cultivate these little audiences that overlap and we're like, oh, okay. There's someone like me. For sure. I think the one comforting thing is that whatever you're experiencing, you're never alone in it. You just might not know that other people are grappling with the same thing, but right. sometimes things aren't discussed openly. And I think a lot of it's cultural as well. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever is the zeitgeist at the moment in time. And at least when it comes to immigrant cultures, there are a lot of topics that are considered taboo. So that could be another reason a lot of things just aren't discussed. But then I think sometimes in the West, it feels like there's this idea of anti-intellectualism. You don't want to appear to be too cerebral because then you're not relatable. And have you ever come across that in your work? Yes. Come on. <laughs> like I said, my grandmother had an eighth grade education. And whenever my mom introduces me to anybody, I was like, that's my daughter. She's really smart. It's, it's so <laughs> like, don't put that on me. But yeah, so I think it's the problem is then I went and got a PhD and I'm in academia. And then the chair of my department is like, asking my PI like, oh, who's your tech with all the tattoos? She's that's like my best student. The fuck. So it's, I don't know if you, either way, you're not allowed to be a real person. You have to be, you know, what someone else expects you to be like, oh, we expect you to be this really smart person, or we expect you to be like this fun person. Or so I think the anti-intellectualism, I think is a misnomer, to be honest. I think 
It's like anti-humanism though, is what I really think it is. We don't want to accept where we're evolving. And this is like something I just made up right now. So <laughs> fresh on Nita Jane's podcast, fresh from the dome. But I think we don't want to accept what we're evolving into. We're stuck in the past. We're stuck with this is what we do. This is what we've always done. And then some of us, obviously the conservatives, but on the other side of things, people have their head in the clouds or thinking too far into the future of what we could be, what we could evolve into. It's no what about what we are right now? We have all these cognitive abilities. There's nothing wrong with using them. And I think intellectuals themselves feel this, this sense of other, that they don't really fit in with regular people because sometimes they think about things that are very niche or very esoteric and they hate that thing about themselves. It's tough to think. It's hard to be a thinker. Do you view absurdism as pushing back against the idea that we have to be a certain way? Do you think of it as like a counterculture movement to the idea that we have to fit in boxes or labels or be yeah. neatly categorized? I like that. And I love that you keep going back to absurdism because you're making me think I need to pitch my book. I was supposed to pitch my book last week and I didn't. Yeah. So I, I do. I like absurdism and I think absurd. Like absurdism really got me through some tough shit, especially crossing that barrier of the identity that I was in. I was, I'm a scientist. Now I feel like I'm more of an artist. I don't know. I don't, I'm a writer. Like what the fuck am I? Can I be both? And I think absurdism allowed me to dip a little toe in the pond of both and be like, okay, yeah, I can be both. I don't have to choose one thing or the other. And I do look at it as a little bit of cope, a little bit of like a counterculture thing, but I also view it as a tool to help deal with uncertainty. I think when you take a step back and realize the world really is absurd, it's not reasonable, it's not comprehensible, like you're never going to get this shit. You just sit back and go, huh, okay, I don't know as much as I thought I knew. And the people that I thought knew something don't know as much as they think they know, even if they won't admit it to themselves. So you really can't take yourself that seriously if you accept that the world is an absurd place. So think of it more of as a, a cope. And I think it becomes counterculture because when you embrace it the way I do, I think it can't be anything but a counterculture because you're just like, no, this makes no goddamn sense. Like you can't just be cool with things not making sense. They have to make it make sense, and it just doesn't. And so I think it's one of those things that will always be counterculture. Definitely. A mention of the fact that since everything is absurd, we really shouldn't take things so seriously. That kind of reminds me of something that Margot Fontaine had once said, the British ballet dancer. She had said, the one important thing I've learned over the years is the difference between taking one's work seriously and oneself seriously. The first is imperative and the second is disastrous. And I think that's like going back to this idea that if we cultivate a sense of comfort with uncertainty, if we embrace those things, like a lot of the things that we take so seriously, they're just folly at the end of the day. And I think this also connects back to Carl Sagan and his idea that we're trying to inhabit or take charge of this small portion of a fraction of a pale blue dot and everything is just folly because we're all just really insignificant. I just think that looking at the bigger picture definitely helps put things in perspective, but I think when you're in the process of being on the daily grind, it's just very easy to overlook and get swept up in, in what's happening in the day-to-day -day. and it's difficult to look outward and realize that there's more to what's happening. I also really like that point that you made about not always being focused on the end goal or the destination, but also accepting the process, like who we are in the present moment. That kind of reminds me of this book that Robert Heinlein had written. It's a sci-fi novel and it was called Time Enough for Love. And in the book, the protagonist says that children live in the present 
adults live in the future for the things that they need to accomplish and plan for, and then the elderly live in the past. And I think it's a good reminder that you can be missing out on a lot of things if you're never spending any time in the present moment, if you're always thinking about the future or maybe dwelling on the past, you're probably missing out on things that could be much better utilized if you were more in the moment. But yeah, what are your thoughts on being more present? Like, how can we accomplish that? Because I think, especially as adults, we are very much in planning mode much of the time. Like, how would we take advantage of what's happening in the now? I've been doing a lot of stuff around like my values alignments lately. And it's really easy to talk about what you want. And this is my value. I value spending quality time with my family. But a lot of times your actions aren't lined up with your values. And I think we don't think in this way. And for a long time, up until two years ago when I quit my job in biotech, my values were way out of line, way out of line. And I knew it when I took that job, I knew they were gonna be out of line and it was gonna help me get to the next place, which I wasn't sure where it was. I was exploring a lot. But then when it came time to make a change, I knew it, I felt it because I wasn't present. I wasn't thinking clearly. I was borderline suicidal, not even borderline, just I was suicidal and just very unhappy. And the thing that pulled me out was I recognize if this is a life or death situation, if I don't start to realign what I really care about, it's the end for me. And if it's not the end for me, then I get to live in this fucking purgatory for the rest of my life, which might as well be the end. And so at that moment, I took leave from my job and I started thinking a lot. Someone recommended stoicism to me. So I grabbed a copy of the Daily Stoic, just never really thought about stoicism before and started reading daily. And oh my gosh, it helped. That plus Wellbutrin, I think. <laughs> Those two things really helped me at least get up and get dressed in the morning and feel okay. Not even okay, just like alive. And then from there, I did what I always did, which is to write and realized doing Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, you do three pages of morning pages every day. And it became like a meditation for me. And so I hate when people talk, oh, you got to meditate. It's yes, you have to meditate. There's something you have to do. You have to change what you're doing. And those three pages every single day for however long I did it, 12 weeks, it became like gold to me and I want to go back to it oftentimes and I really, I want to redo it. I want to do that course again, but that helped me so much be in the moment, but I wouldn't have been able to do those things, the meditation, the daily stoic stuff, writing my book that I was writing that was helping me every day and the artist way stuff. I wouldn't have been able to do any of that if I hadn't given up the shit that wasn't working and like leaving those old values behind or whatever I thought were my values you can't really be in the moment when you've got this kind of looming cloud over you. And that's the only way I can see it. I think that's really quite profound that we do have to make those difficult decisions and figure out what is and isn't serving us in terms of our purpose. But at the same time, I think that sometimes there's this tendency to want to paint things as being like either beneficial for us or bad for us. But a lot of the time you might just be outgrowing certain things and that's okay mm -hmm. as well. Like a lot of the time, relationships will end, friendships will end. And th this is not necessarily always due to negligence or something like that. Sometimes it's just like natural change. Maybe you're in different right. places in your life right now. Maybe responsibilities have changed. Maybe you're really busy raising a family and that's why your priorities have mm -hmm. shifted. I think I just like really appreciate the understanding that, you know, just because someone is no longer in your life, it doesn't necessarily mean that either of you are bad people. It's just you're in different places right now. I think a lot of the time our brains tend to view things in black and white terms, but it's really varying shades of gray. And I think 
your personal struggle, it definitely brought a lot of hardship and suffering into your life. But at the same time, it molded you into the person that you are today. So everything has those two sides where the suffering and the adversity also develops resilience and empathy and candor and all those other qualities that you possess. I think it's all part and parcel of the things that you experience. And I'm just very grateful that you're sharing it with us today. It means a lot. <laughs> yeah, I'm like super vulnerable. <laughs> it's like pouring my heart out to you. But that's and that's really hard too. So it's really hard to just sit and talk about this knowing it's going to be like out in places. But it's it's just part of it. The hard part is like what you have to do. You just when you know something is uncomfortable, it's like sometimes you just have to push through it and do it because you're right. There's something on the other side of it that you're probably not expecting. Those uncomfortable moments, that's usually where the most growth happens. I'm thinking of biochemist Rita Levy Montalcini when she said, don't fear difficult moments. The best often comes from them, which mm -hmm. it's often really hard to think that way when you're in the middle of it. But mm -hmm. I guess just the knowledge that something will improve as a result of this can be comforting. Um, That's that cognitive override. That's like saying, telling yourself, like when things are tough and shitty, you have to be like, okay, I know I've worked this out. I, there's a reason I'm doing the thing I'm doing right now. I'm doing it with intention. And even though it doesn't feel right, I cognitively know that this is the right direction, at least that I'm supposed to be heading. It's like building trust with yourself. Definitely. Yeah. I love that you say that because I think our relationship with ourselves is often one of the most neglected ones. We often spend time, especially as creatives, like wanting to build trust with other people in our network, wanting to build trust with our audience. But yeah, I don't think we spend nearly enough time building trust with ourselves. I spent seven years building trust with myself. Like in when I was in biotech, I wrote, I was on a plane every week. And so I'd be just writing on the plane, drinking five glasses of Prosecco or whatever, like drowning my sorrows, but just prolific. I probably wrote 500,000 words during that time. Just what am I doing? What if I try this? Should I do that? And I really got to know myself, which was sort sorely neglected for most of my life because I was hustling to get out of my family's household, then out of college and working two jobs, and then out of my PhD to start my life and have a baby and buy a house and all these things. And then all of a sudden I was just like, here I am. Okay, I'm on a plane every week in first class drinking champagne and I'm miserable. Like, what? What is wrong with you? So that, that was a point at which I had to like really get to know myself. Took seven years and then I just couldn't stand it anymore. And so here I am. Seven years well spent though, if it gets you to where you think you would like to be. And it seems that you have found some fulfillment in the work that you're doing right now, which... I think is great to be in that place where, like you're saying, your values align with what you're doing and how you're living and the actions that you're taking. I don't think I'm in a place where I want to be necessarily. I'm not like, oh yeah, I made it. Hey, whatever. <laughs> but I have made it in the sense that this is what it is. This is where I want to be. This is what I want to be doing. And so I have made it. This is like the question that creators always ask other creators. It's, are you making it? In some ways, but not in the way that society would define success. So yeah, it's a process. But also, mm -hmm. I feel like the benchmarks are often changing. And I don't mean as like the goalposts keep advancing, but I think what we think of as having made it, that's changing in the way that you can always look at extremes and track things in terms of like number of downloads or subscriber count and things like that. But I think the older I get, the more I'm wanting 
to just have a sense of community and to be able to impact even one or two lives with a message. I feel like that's closer to what I think is making it than the vanity mm-hmm. metrics. That yeah. means My more. mom always said that. She was like, you never know how you might meet someone and completely change their day. And so I think we have to start living a little bit differently and looking at our own lives and how we live them differently. And the only way to do that, I think, is to start figuring out what your values are and how you want to live by them and then stick to it. My values are not making a ton of money. My values are not drinking champagne in first class. They never were. It was cool. It was fun. But I I don't give a shit. And so I can't put that in my sphere of what I'm trying to achieve. It's just not what I want. I don't care what other people tell me what I should want. So generational wealth is shitty anyways. Like I'm going to leave my kid, I don't know, something, but not going to leave her, you know, too much to make trouble with. No one's talking about that either. No one's talking about like, why are you building wealth? We don't talk about the gilded age of philanthropy that we live in. I was making too much money and I was like, what the fuck am I going to do with this? How much do I need and where should it go? And I got into effective altruism thinking about all that stuff as well, but they don't even fucking know. They don't even know what you should do with it. They tell you, give us 10% of your earnings, but they really don't tell you. They do if you look a little deeper. They're like, we don't, we don't know what to do either, but at least we're like calculating stuff. <laughs> yeah. The premise of effective altruism is interesting in the sense that they're saying that we shouldn't be emotional about it. You shouldn't have a personal connection. Just donate where it'll make the most impact. But even that is just layered with lots of subjective biases. And I think pretending that you can approach this problem objectively is just turning a blind eye to the reality of the situation because regardless of what action you take, there are people who will potentially stand to be harmed by that action. I just think that EA maybe sometimes offers solutions that are neat to problems that are in reality really manifold and complex. I agree. Yeah. It's been all over the place lately though. And it's funny, like it's weird how the zeitgeist works. I took a six-week course with them. I don't know why. I just did. I was just, I think it came in my inbox. And I was like, sure, I'll do that. Or someone had mentioned it. And I've been involved in kind of stuff that they do for a long time. But I never did the course. And I did it. And I'm glad I did. Because there's nothing I love more than picking apart an idea. And I think they do a decent job of admitting the flaws and faults of the philosophy in part. But um, I think, again, this is trying to get a one-size-fits-all solution is never going to be the answer. Sorry, whatever it is, ain't going to happen. True. I think the attempt is still honorable. It's still worthwhile to endeavor to make things better. But I just think the actual implementation is probably logistically messier than we think it would be. It's just that <laughs> True. At, at, at a large scale, it becomes more obvious. With great power comes great responsibility. But we may or may not take up that responsibility judiciously. But yeah, again, it's all very subjective. What is judicious? We can definitely get into the philosophical rabbit hole. (laughs) It's just inevitable with a lot of things. If you wanted to talk a little bit about your self-help book and the way that's structured and the impetus behind it, just because I have to plug you while you're here, so... (laughs) <laughs> that's funny it's so funny you call it a self-help book I'm like god no I don't want to be a self-help book so I I wrote these little kind of stories to myself every day that kind of helped me cope with the uncertainty of what I was going through and I things are still uncertain but for for three months at least when I was going through this and I was taking leave from my job I didn't even know if I was going to go back to the job 
And it's a, it's, I think a lot to think about leaving that money on the table when you've been someone who's worked their whole life and thought you can't just quit your job. And I spent seven years trying to replace my income with different endeavors, started businesses, learned how to code. I've done every fucking thing. And so I started writing like notes to myself and I was going to the London writer salon every day. And they had a little quote every day. And I'd just take in their quote and just think about it. And then I'd go find my own. And then so I found all of these quotes about dealing with uncertainty. And I read a lot. I read probably the things that inspired me to write this was really reading Camus, you know, the myth of Sisyphus at the time. And I had read The Stranger before. But when I read The Myth of Sisyphus, and I read The Rebel, but this was the moment where I was like, okay, we doing this. And so he talks about different aspects of the journey of coming to understand his own personal philosophy. And I just took parts of that that resonated with me and wrote about it every day and put them in a neat little Daily Stoic was my inspiration. And so I just put them in a neat little package and I finished it a year ago in June. And then I went to pitch it and I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to pitch to 50, I'm going to pitch to 50 agents. And so I took a pitch writing course and I did all this stuff and I pitched, I did a fake pitch or a practice pitch with someone and I sent out like 20 and I got a couple notes back from different agents. One of them was amazing, like dream agent. And it was just the way that this works, trying to get an agent is they might wink at you and be like, yeah, okay, send me your thing. Let me read what you got. And then you never hear back. But what they really want, if they wink at you like that, is they want to know, did someone else wink at you too? Because... Then you've got like competition. They're like, okay, someone else thinks you're interesting enough to give you a book. And I talked with another one that I really liked. And she said that because of the subject matter of the book, it's so niche talking about science and absurdism. And it's a daily dialectical, like who, who writes that? Nobody like Ryan Holiday. And so then I have my cousin's friend is a, works with a publisher and I talk with her and she's like, why don't you try making it into cards? Like everybody loves a deck of cards, like a novelty item. And I was just like, I don't know. And, she, and I had thought about making like a funny workbook, like the scientific absurd experimental workbook, which I might still do someday, but I'm planning on pitching it again. It's just, I got caught up in, in podcast land, but it really was a passion project for me and need to just get it out there, even if it's just self-publishing or pitching, I don't know. But now it's out, now people know that I've written something because I've never talked about this before in a podcast. But so maybe people are gonna be like, we wanna see it. <laughs> so maybe what I can do is I will post some of it on my Substack, and maybe I'll ask my readers what they think I should do next with it. I love that how, idea. How about that, Nita? Does that, make, does that sound like a good idea? Definitely. We have an exclusive of the unpublished manuscript. It's very exciting. Basically, this is an accountability exercise. Like it's Shit. out there. People know that you've done it now. So it has oh, to be put out into the universe. Damn. Okay. I know. Very mischievous. We're plotting over here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just let me add it to the list. <laughs> the hard part is done. It's basically just putting it out. And I don't think so. I don't think so. That part was so easy. It was so easy. Like I just spat it out pretty much. I worked every day tirelessly. No problem. That was fine. But then asking people to read it and asking people, what do you think about this? The critique sessions were even fun. I did quite a few of those. But then pitching it to people, I hate pitching. I hate pitching articles I write. I'm supposed to pitch something this week and I haven't pitched it. I just, that's why I have a Substack because I'm like, here's what I wrote, like it or don't. Yeah, the pitching game can definitely get exhausting, especially in the beginning, because a lot of places they just want you to already have this well-known reputation and you have to start somewhere. It's always getting your foot in the door. That's the hardest. Mm -hmm. We can relate. 
But yeah, I really like the idea of teasing some of the content on your Substack. Okay, I'll do it then. I will, I promise. Maybe next week. Awesome sauce. We will definitely look forward to it. And thank you again for all of your time and sharing your insights and wisdom with us. If you're not already subscribed, please do subscribe to Theory Gang. And the URL for that will be in the show notes. It's theorygang.substack.com. And we will link to all of Natasha's socials in the description as well. Thank you again for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This was really fun and sweet. And I just, you're just such a lovely person to talk to. Likewise. I appreciate you. Thank you. (laughs) If you enjoyed listening, you can find the show notes for this and all other episodes at the Substack URL linked in the show description. You can also review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or Podchaser. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.